Welcome to Bike Talk with Dave. I'm your host, Dave Mabel. Thank you for joining me here today. I love doing this, so I'm glad you listen and hopefully you're enjoying these episodes. As I record this, it's about 4 a.m. local time in Alaska, and Tyson Flaherty, whom you might remember from episode 6, a fat biker from Fairbanks, Alaska, has just left the Roan checkpoint and is 190 miles along the Iditarod Trail, riding down the Tatitna River out of the Alaska Range and into the plains of western Alaska through an area called the Burn. He's being chased by fellow Alaskan rider Myron Golfman towards the what looks like could be a sprint finish another 110 miles away in McGrath during the Iditarod Trail Invitational. The Iditarod Trail Invitational began on Monday, February 27th at 2 p.m. Alaska time. So this week, I thought we could vicariously follow along with a bit of a throwback from 2019 when a good friend of mine, Steve Cannon, and I, we packed up our stuff and pedaled, pushed, and flew the thousand miles to Nome along the Iditarod Trail. So this week and next week for the regular show, I'm publishing an interview I had with Cannon that we conducted after we returned home from our trip to Alaska. If you've seen our film, A Thousand Miles to Nome, you might hear a snippet or two, but until I dug this out of my hard drive, I had been the only human ever to hear this interview in its entirety. So this is going to be a two-part episode due to its length. The first part is what took Steve to go from his first fat bike ride all the way to the starting line, veering down the trail towards Nome. Part two will take us all along the trail on a 28-day journey from Kinnick Lake, just outside Anchorage, through the Alaska Range, up the Yukon River to the Bering Sea, and onto the finish line under the great burled arch in Nome. Steve's a great, if not dramatic, storyteller, so hang on through the pregnant pauses. I promise it's worth it. This is a project, four years in the making, but saying that, my first fat bike ride, certainly there was no thought of someday going a thousand miles to Nome. It was just an experimental ride because I had nothing better to do. And so the local bike shop guys threw a fat bike my way and said, it snowed four inches this morning, take it out for a spin. I thought fat bikes were honestly just stupid. I was, I didn't see where there was any real future in them. They looked goofy, but I rode it down the trail towards the coming tap and first tracks. And I already had a bit of a affinity for winter sports. I'd fallen in love with snowshoeing and had done some snowshoe racing and just waiting for the next winter storm. And when most people would go inside, I couldn't wait to go outside. So they didn't have to twist my arm too hard. But by the time I got back from that four miles down and four miles back to the shop, I 
had my checkbook out and I think paid $600 for a surly, I think it's surly salsa, mukluk, uh, big steel frame, heavy, but immediately once I got on it, I could see that it opened up a whole world of adventure. You could go anywhere, run over just about anything. So, but again, that's, I can look back now and see that was the start because now I had this new adventure toy and touring, cycle cross, gravel riding. I'd been bitten by the cycling bug for many years. So, as I'm finding out more and more that I'm prone to do, once I find something I like, I jump all the way in. And I don't think it was more than a couple weeks. And I had Joe Stiller on the phone. He was kind enough as he was driving somewhere a long distance to basically tell me every piece of clothing I needed from the tips of my toes to the top of my head to do a winter ultra race. I asked him to vouch for me and he did and I believe it was two months after that first eight mile ride I was entered into the Tuscobia 158 November well, probably closer to six weeks and so no other in-between races. Helen and Chris Scotch were cool enough to look at some of the things I'd done and the fact that Joe had shared his knowledge with me and they felt that there was at least a decent chance I wouldn't die on their race. So that was, that was the start. But even then, I didn't even, I didn't even know there was a I did ride trail invitational. I didn't know there was a race in Alaska. I just knew this was a winter ultra. It seemed way beyond my capabilities. So I wanted to learn as quickly as I could and see if I could take it down. And I remember getting to that race because that was four inches of snow we had that I got to go out in Iowa. It melted pretty straight away. So by the time I got up to Wisconsin for that ultra. I don't know that I'd done 10 miles in the snow and the race was 158 and I they had plenty of snow. I went out for the pre-ride the day before bike all loaded fast track gear because the gear list was extensive so you had to have a bedroll you had to have and Joe was a huge help and Jay Petterberry, uh, learning from these guys on the fly. Bike bag dude, bike bags, the whole deal, 45 North, just grabbing the best of all the equipment I could from these guys that knew what they were doing. But starting the pre-ride, I got on this snow-covered trail and I made it four pedal strokes. <laughs> oh, that's not a good start. And got back up thinking, well, probably just a fluke. I hit a piece of ice, who knows what, and made it maybe another seven pedal strokes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, 
what the hell am I doing here? You know, I'm making it 15 feet at a time and I've got to go 158 miles. So that was my introduction into tire pressure. And so, again, learning on the fly, letting air out, make it 20 meters, poof, let some more air out, 50, 75, eh, don't quite fall, get a leg down. But I was, I was able to complete the race 24, almost 24 hours exactly. It was a sprint finish between me and the lady that actually won the race on foot. <laughs> uh, but I just, I was, I was in love with it. I hear middle of the night, northern Wisconsin, 10, 15 below conditions I'd never been. I was prepared for because I had the right gear, but I didn't really know how to use it all that well. Outdoor experiences before helped, but that was that was the end game. So even there, it wasn't until uh, being completely in love with that that then immediately afterwards I started to, where else can I go? And the granddaddy is, at least at that point, in my amassing of where to go and where to race and those kind of things was the Arrowhead 135. And so that was the next year and I signed up for that race and uh, I wanted to go back and do Tuscobia again so I was signed up for that. And uh, it was sitting at the Tuscobia race. Mark Scotch, Chris's dad, who's a real badass in his own right, I think he's actually skied walked and biked to Scobia, maybe Arrowhead too, uh, we were having dinner in the same restaurant and he found out I was doing Arrowhead three weeks after Tuscobia, and he says, well, you're going for the Order of the Reimthers then, right? I, I, had, <laughs> I had no idea what that even was. He says, well, there's another race, the Act of Epica, two weeks after Arrowhead, and if you do all three of these races in the same season, you get into this order, which is a pretty, pretty small club because you're doing a 160-mile race, and then three weeks later you're doing Arrowhead 135, and then two weeks later you go up into, I think it's Manitoba, into, into Canada and uh, doing their 120 miler. So not a whole lot of time to recoup and get going again. And so I said, no, but yeah, let's, if I, you're right, if I'm doing those two, um, I gotta do the, the third. And this is a really long-winded answer to your question, but it was at Active Epica they bus you 40 miles, I think, out to the start and then you do the race and you finish in a completely different place. And a guy who became a mentor and dear friend, 
Todd McFadden. I didn't know his name at the time. I did know his name. I didn't know this was him, but I knew his name because he had the record at that time at Arrowhead. But he was one, as fate would have it, he was one seat ahead of me on the bus ride. And he was talking about this race in Alaska and how he hoped to go do it someday. And I just kept getting closer and closer and leaning closer over his shoulder. It was just, I was a kid at his grandfather's feet. I, I just every, I just was hanging on every word. He was talking about these different places, Rainy Pass and McGrath and Nome and throwing out these great 350 miles, thousand miles. And I'm like, what? You gotta be kidding me. Like 135 at Arrowhead, 150 at Tascobia, just being completely zeroed out finishing those races. And then someplace with his descriptions and in my own mind, Alaska. Like, how in the world do you go three, forget the thousand. How in the hell do you go three times, two or three times as far? And we, he could tell um, that I was hooked and God love him. I mean, he took me under his wing. A lot of a lot of people have. We can talk about that. Uh, we're better friends than, but jeez, I just love the guy. Uh, that's that's sitting here right now. That's the beauty of Alaska. I've lived there the last two years, and I don't comprehend that place any more today than I did on that bus with Todd. What do you mean by that? It's too big. You, I'm still a complete rookie in that place, so this is only a guess but I think you could spend your whole life there and never really know Alaska. Never really be able to come to grips with how wild a place it is, the enormity of the place. But after completing the three races, winter racing, <clears throat> winter adventuring, I was, I was hooked. And winters have become almost non-existent in Iowa. The cold has stayed, but the snow is unreliable at best. And so the, the next year, I made the decision that I would just live where there's snow. And so I moved to Rice Lake 
still no thoughts of Alaska. It was just, might as well have been the moon. Somebody could talk about going to the moon. I'd be like, oh man, what an adventure. That's great. But we could talk for days, weeks, months, years. At no point would I leave and think, yeah, yeah, I could see myself doing that someday. Alaska was still the, the same way. The people that were doing that race, even now being one of the people that have done that race, I, I, don't, I don't really understand it. But I moved to Rice Lake just to immerse myself more in the winter culture. Wanted to learn how to cross-country ski. Wanted to just be able to ride my fat bike in the snow as much as I could. Wanted to try to compete, get better at Arrowhead. And that was, that was really, that was really it. And that would have been my third year of Arrowhead and a, an amazing race. Great challenge, you actually do feel pretty remote out in the wilderness outside of International Falls. It can get 20, 30 below. And that just became like crack for me. The colder, the more wicked. By this time I was, <laughs> I'd love if somebody asked Jay and if he would answer honestly, if he just got sick of me calling and texting and man to the to the dude's credit for whatever reason same with Todd but Jay especially he just he he just always made time and and the the uh the knowledge was invaluable because 20 30 below out in the wilderness if you do something wrong you're going to you're going to pay maybe in flesh but it was it was sometime up there in Rice Lake and working on the skills more and more and just being more in that environment. You go to the pre-race meeting at Arrowhead and still I gush, my face just, I can feel it. I just light up when I think about that place. It's like the Highlander for winter racing. It's, it's the gathering. It's where all of these people come together. There can be only one. <laughs> and you're looking around and, I mean, these are, just, these are just the winter adventurers. Still, I'm in awe when I'm in that room. But there'd be this like, You know, and royalty. That guy, he went to McGrath three times. Royalty. Immediate street cred. Everybody in there. Anybody that had, that had been up to take on that race, you just... That sort of thing. And so that's, that's when... That time period, I thought, I wonder if I've got this stuff. 
So that was, that was it. I made the decision after living in Rice Lake for a winter that if I applied and they accepted me, which they don't have to, I had five, I think five qualifying races under my belt, which I was almost assured that would be, that would be enough. But I sent my application off and it's, there's a, there's a wonderful romance to filling out that application. You're, you know, 350 miles to McGrath, forget the thousand. There was no thoughts like, oh, if I can get this done, no way. The 350 was a moonshot for me. But I thought if they, if they accept, if they accept that, then I'll, I'll move to Alaska. I'll give it, give it everything that I, that I have. <clears throat> and I'll be damned it. They said yes. And then it's, <laughs> oh, I guess every emotion in the rainbow spectrum of emotions when you get that email back saying you've been accepted to go to McGrath. Elation, laughter, <laughs> almost tears, happy, scared. For me, the race terrified me. I, I mean, to the point that I started putting out feelers pretty quickly where I could, where I could possibly live in Fairbanks. I did some research and Fairbanks is the coldest place where there's still people living and training. And I knew some of the names, Jay Cable, Kevin Breitenbach. I could reach out to them and so that's, that's how it happened. And then, so two years ago, November, well, the day after Thanksgiving, I loaded up everything that I thought I needed and set out to drive from Des Moines to Fairbanks to spend three months immersing myself in the fat bike culture in Alaska and learning from the best of the best with the hope being I could make it. When was the decision to go to Nome? I was so hooked, man. I can remember the first ride I did with Kevin Breitenbach as soon as I arrived in Fairbanks. He took me up into the hills and these just beautiful snow-packed trails, everything so pristine, so white, so big, so cold, just everything you were looking for. So I, I immediately was hooked by Alaska. And you can't, you can't describe it. Everybody asks, everybody wants you to, but you could be <laughs> the most gifted writer, storyteller on the planet and somebody would get to Alaska after you described it to them at your very best. And they would tell you, you 
weren't even close. So I moved to Alaska to get to McGrath. Nome was, Nome was not on my radar. That would be, for me, the equivalent, oh, I don't know, showing up to the starting line of Grandma's, which was my first marathon, and telling you my plans to run 11 marathons in a row to go across Iowa. That's, that's just getting the cart so far in front of the horse. And so there were, I'm sure somewhere in here, Nome was a possibility, but nowhere up here was it part of the thoughts. 350 miles, and certainly uh, because of JP's race, the Fat Pursuit, I had gone out five weeks, six weeks before, and I DNF'd his race. I made it 130, 140 miles, and made some blunders, mostly errors in judgment. And so, you know, to, to, to be coming off of that and have the hubris to be like, yeah, once I take care of McGrath, then I'm off to Nome. And there was just none of that. I just, this was still a moonshot for me, 350 miles. I'm, I'd never gone half that on a fat bike at one time. So McGrath was first. That was, that was the, now that being said, I was ready, I was prepared, I'd done my work, I knew my systems to the best of my ability at that time. I'd spent nights out, I'd worked on bivvying when it was 30 below, sometimes making mistakes and having to run into the cabin to get warm. I'd, I'd done all of that, so most people are going up to Alaska to race and it might be the first time they've been there. They've done work in the lower 48, but they, so by the time the race came, I had 60 plus days in Alaska, but it's still Alaska and it's still 350 miles and it's still in the back country wild. I had no idea what was going to take place. And there were some incredibly challenging parts of the race, don't get me wrong, but it's south and in many ways a more hospitable area than Fairbanks is. Fairbanks is notoriously more cold. So there wasn't, other than the event itself and being in the mountains, but I'd been in the White Mountains, I wasn't over my skis as far as I would have been I can say honestly, I, I don't think I would have been able to finish the race had I not moved to Alaska. I, after those five races, and it was the great gift of JP's is, was to show me what a difference, no disrespect at all to Arrowhead, to Scobia, Active Epica, but JP's race in the back country of Idaho is big country. And it's what you don't know you don't know that gets you in trouble. And that really made me refocus on, I, I was plenty fit on 
systems on how to be comfortable bidding, how to be able to do this, blah, blah, blah. But when I finished in McGrath, I told myself, I know I'm going to get the question about Gnome from others as well as myself, but I'm not answering it for 30 days. I'm going to enjoy this. But I knew the minute my foot went down after crossing the finish line in McGrath that I was, I was going to be at the starting line someday, hopefully really soon, to try and go to Nome. So I knew. I stayed true to my promise and didn't let it out, but that same year after I finished in McGrath, I actually flew to Nome to watch people, to watch my friends finish and to work on Kathy Merchant, who was there at the finish line, <laughs> to brown those as much as I could so that hopefully one 350 finish to McGrath would get me into the thousand miles to Nome. And I also got to spend some time on the trail with Kyle Duran, who was co-race director that year and also on the trail. And so we got along well and he apparently thought I handled myself good enough on the 350 miles that he saw that they, uh, they did end up okaying my application. What would you say are the, like, three to five key elements in preparing for the thousand miles? So if there were five things you wanted to work on to have a shot at Nome, it would be Your attitude, your attitude, your attitude, your attitude, and your attitude. It would be those five things. Is your attitude important in getting to know? Your attitude is everything in getting to know. Everybody that shows up at that starting line is fit enough to finish, absolutely. Everybody that shows up at that starting line that's going to Nome understands their gear and their systems enough. I wouldn't say the same thing about the 350. But we're not talking about the 350, we're talking about the 1,000. Going to Nome is a non-stop fist fight with your mind. There's no gear list, which assumes that if you're at that starting line, you know what the hell you're doing, which you do, because you can't buy your way in. You can't just say, like Everest, for example, you can't just pay someone $100,000 
have them send you all the gear and then they attach a rope to you and take you to the top of Everest because you have enough money. This is self-supported. You're walking, skiing, running, biking, pushing, whatever it takes. But for the majority, you're on your own. And so to say, well, you know, it's really important that you know how to sleep outside. It is. But to count it as one of the five things, it's just assumed. It's a Chinese water torture. And it's never the first, tenth, or eight hundredth drop of water that gets you. And eventually it's still just the same drop of water that was the first drop of water that doesn't that didn't bother you. It's just that it's hit you so many times that you can't take it anymore. And so that's that's what this race is. It's a windstorm that wasn't expected. It's having to turn around when you think you're home free. It's how can it be raining on me on the Yukon River? How could it just take me eight hours to go 14 miles through a tussock field and be able to keep your head in the game and realize that whatever the conditions, horrible or fantastic, they are not going to last forever. And there's an endless amount of those curveballs. And so you spend as much time outside on your bike in the worst weather possible so that you learn to deal. Getting to know them is all mental. Yeah, the, the week before the race, I would say this. 17 of us were on the start line. I may have been the most out of shape of the 17 but I was as prepared or better prepared than anybody else on that start line. And some would probably argue that, and I'm not saying, but the week before the race, there really wasn't a lot to do. My bike had been packed for Nome for three months. I rode with it that way. I tweaked this, I tweaked that. I knew where everything, you had to put a few more things in there. Have to put some more freeze-dried meals and some more food. But again, JP's advice when it comes to Gnome is you pack everything. So over the course of three or four years, I'd gotten pretty good at where what I needed, and living in Alaska, the same thing. You know, you when you're in Fairbanks and you decide to go out for a 20-mile ride, the trail's usually great, so that might only be two or three hours. But five or 10 miles out your cabin door, if you thought not to take one of your parkas because it was nice and lovely out, you only have to get caught in one of those storms to realize 
you don't ever go out without things wired. And so packing the bike was really not much of a big deal, which was nice. It was, again, I was of the opinion to train heavy and race light. So I didn't ever want to get to any event, pack my bike, because I always trained with just the bare minimum because I was going out to ride and not camp. And so why do I need my sleeping system? I've got my parka, I've got my seat post. And now I've got a 69-pound bike, and I'm sitting at the start line. I've got enough to worry about. I don't want to be sitting on the seat of that bike going, oh, shit, this thing's a pig. I sure wish I would have trained with this. Now i got to carry this. You can just hear it already. My voice is starting. My mind's already starting to unravel just playing that out. So the week before is just torture because it's just busy work and you're just, you just want to go. You're a caged animal. You, you want out. You're tired of going to the post office and sending drop boxes. You're tired of packing this and boxing this and sending it here and tapering. And so I'm just sitting in a cabin for a week with really nothing to do and this giant event looming over me. Fortunately, you were coming out to start the filming for the movie so it gave some social interaction and something to do because you saw it the same. Once you get to Anchorage, everybody is just like, let's go. Let's get on the trail. Let's get going. And so the, the week before, you know, this was, this was two years in the making for me. So I'd rehearsed every line. I knew every song. I could conduct it from this, in my sleep. I just wanted to go race. Did you take your bike to have a final tune-up? No. Again, with the bike, there was no need for a final tune-up because you're in Alaska. So a 20-mile ride, a 10-mile ride in November, you got to have everything wired tight for that just as much as a thousand miles to Nome because if something breaks and you go out on your training ride and it's 25 below zero, you're in trouble. So it's not one of those things where you think, ah, oh, you know, I'll deal with this or I'll deal with that. I'll take that in. I'll get that wax or I'll get that grease. I'll do this. You know, when it gets closer to, oh man, I mean, not to be overly dramatic, but the, the place can put you in a really bad spot. So again, when I say no one showed up to that line any better prepared than me, I had the guys at Goldstream Sports, I had my own personal pit crew for three months. And these guys, Tyson, Wes, they, they just adopted me and my bike. 
and they were just, you know, they've lived there for years. And so from the moment I got there two years ago, those guys were, let's do, what about, let's get this. You need, you know, they, they wouldn't let me, had I even wanted to, they wouldn't let me cut corners. So again, I was looking back, there wasn't a single piece of gear that I wish I would have taken. There wasn't a single piece of gear that I took that I wish I hadn't. And there wasn't one thing on that bike that gave me an issue. Call it luck. Yeah, I suppose. But I was freaking prepared. The day before the race is just such a relief. A bit blurry. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just in my nature not to pay so much attention or maybe I just still haven't unpacked it completely and I'm still foggy. I just remember being excited to get to the pre-race meeting, not for any particular reason other than it just meant we were 24 hours away from the race starting. It meant just one more night in Anchorage. It meant 24 hours later you were going to be on a bus headed for Kinnick Lake. So, and the energy builds. There's certainly, there's certainly that as we're filtering into the auditorium for last instructions, you know, you probably hear 15 different times, well, shit's getting real now, laughing. and But there's definitely that, there's definitely that palpable, all right, it is actually getting real now. And Kathy and Kyle, are just laying out the thousand miles in three different sections because this year was the first year that they had a 150 mile race. And so they're explaining that for new people there, the, from there on to McGrath and shelter cabins and trail etiquette and things to possibly expect, look out for and then, at least in my head, it seems like after McGrath, they just kind of, you guys and gals have been here before. Don't call people at four o'clock in the morning asking them for your drop, just a couple basic, but <laughs> kind of a, yeah, when you leave McGrath, good luck. Seemed like the, there was there was more going on, but I was I was uh, I was for the most part tuned in, but tuned out. And uh, you leave you leave there, and all you're thinking about is food. How much can I eat tonight? How much can I eat tomorrow? Be down to the bottom of the hotel by noon and load your gear 
head for the race start. Race morning, race morning at the ITI is, I've only done it twice, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's not, for me, there was this really nostalgic because you get your stuff down there and there's pulks, which are pull behind sleds for the runners or the skiers and the bikes. And everybody at some level or another is checking out other people's gear. And not so much, did I do this or did, you're way beyond that. But you just, oh, that's kind of cool. That's but then they're loading into these big buses and back of U-Hauls and takes three people to load your bike and some heavier than others, but everyone thinking, oh man, at some point I'm gonna have to push this up the happy steps or I might have to walk it up and over a rainy pass. And so you just, it's excitement, it's nervous, but I remember getting on the bus and thinking, this is where it all started really started was a bus ride with Todd McFadden in the active epica. Gets me emotional talking about it. And so getting on the bus, it was just really cool to think from that kid at his grandfather's feet going to the active epica, listening to Todd tell stories about this far off place and now here I was. Two years later, I was, I was back on the, back on a bus, but now I was in that place that seemed not even a possibility so long before. And man, it was beautiful sunny day, crisp, cold. Rumor was that the trail was in great shape. I don't recall that the sun had really shined much. The, days leading up to that, but it was bluebird skies. What's it feel like pulling into uh, the Kinnick Roadhouse? I would think pulling up to the Kinnick Lake Roadhouse, which is where we start. I, I, I don't know, an hour outside of Anchorage, my time, I, I don't know, so lost looking out the window. And, but I would guess it's like pulling up to the Superdome in New Orleans for the Super Bowl. And you're getting off the bus and you're walking into the locker room. I would think it would feel like that. You get off that thing and, I mean, this is it. There's, there's no bigger race in what we do than the thousand miles to know. This is the Super Bowl. And yes, it's a race, but if you make it to the finish line, you've won the Super Bowl. And it's different for everybody. I'm sure when you get out of that bus, I can remember sitting in front of that Iditarod starting line banner and everybody goes in front of it to get that picture. And you're thinking, at least I was. I don't know how you'd be able to completely block it out. A thousand miles. <sighs> a 
thousand miles. And you just sit with that. What a flood of memories that brings me. And we haven't even rolled down the trail yet. I can't wait to share part two with you next week. You can't wait that long, you say? Well, guess what? I have decided to launch a whole new chapter of Bike Talk with Dave. This is for those who don't always have a solid hour to listen. It's called Bike Talk Shorts, five to 15 minute stories with incredible people who do incredible things. Extra episodes dropped randomly between our weekly Wednesday episodes. I'm starting this week in the spirit of the Iditarod Trail with a conversation in the living room of the checkpoint of the host family in McGrath, Alaska with fat biker, Flory Riederberger. He was kind enough to sit down and chat with me on the eve of him getting back on his bike and continuing west towards Iditarod and eventually Nome. I do have a funny story to share about his departure as well, so I hope you tune in to the first of these new episodes. And the best way to do that is to subscribe and download. That way you won't miss a thing. And if you want to see what life is like on the trail, our films, both A Thousand Miles to Nome and Down the Kuskokwim, are available now on the Bike Talk with Dave YouTube channel. So check them out and enjoy. I would love it also if you would rate and review wherever you listen. And please feel free to share this with your friends. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can look for Bike Talk with Dave at buymeacoffee.com or keep it simple and hit me up on Venmo at david-mabel. If you do, I'd love to send you a Bike Talk with Dave sticker. There's a link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. And thanks too to bikeiowa.com for being the online host of Bike Talk with Dave. Bikeiowa.com is where you can find out what's going on and where to go. Bike month is only 60 days away, so it's never too early to start planning. One of the races you might find on bikeiowa.com is the Driftless 100, a challenging scenic gravel race through the wooded hills of northeast Iowa on April 29th. It starts in the town of Elkader. I'll be there with the Iowa Gravel Gang. You can join us by signing up today. Click the link on bikeiowa.com or go to driftlessgravel.com to register. I'm also excited to load our tandem up and head to Sweetwater, Texas for the Rattlesnake Gravel Grind the final weekend in March. It looks like a full weekend of riding, music, food, and good old West Texas hospitality. We can't wait, and we hope you join us. Find out all about it at rattlesnakegravelgrind.bike. Now I'm going to go grab another cup of chain and spoke coffee which is available now by ordering at chainandspoke.com. But I must say, the retail location is rounding the turn and into the home stretch. The floors are finished, and the bike shop and coffee shop will take shape in the next couple of weeks. We hope to enjoy a cup of hot joe before we leave for Texas. The opening date for the retail location, bike and coffee shop, is set for late March. Thanks again for tuning in. We've got lots of fun episodes lined up. Next week, we'll travel the Iditarod Trail with Steve Cannon, and then we'll hear from Heather Poscovich as she plans to tackle another doozy of a bike ride, the Race Across America. And later this winter, we'll talk with Matt Fippen, director of the annual bike ride across Iowa, Ragbri. 
And of course, sprinkled in between will be our extra episodes with news from event directors and the new Bike Talk shorts. So be sure and subscribe and follow Bike Talk with Dave on Instagram and Facebook so you don't miss a thing. We hope you have an awesome week and keep on rolling. And we're going to leave you this week with a special rendition of the song Alaska by Jason Walsmith and the Nadas. I'd like to dedicate this song to my, uh, my friend Steve Kamen, who uh, raced in the Iditarod this year. You guys know the Iditarod? The, uh, the race a thousand miles in the frigid cold of Alaska. I'll dedicate to Steve and anyone else here who did the Iditarod. But, uh, but Steve did it on a bicycle. So uh, we'll dedicate this song to, to Steve.
Alaska.